Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad you're listening in. Uh, This is 2024, and I, among other things, am a father. I uh, got a little child that came right on his due date. Apparently only 5% of newborns come on their actual due date. He was right on time. And uh, uh, on January 4th, 2024, Elijah Allen Claiborne is here. And if you follow me on the social media, you'll see plenty of cute little pictures um, that I'm putting up and even videos, his first hiccups, his, I didn't really put, put his first poop, but you know, like uh, just really cool. We had a little, little snowfall. We went out in and we had um, him snoring the other night. So I'm loving that. But I also, um, you know, we're we're living our faith out in this world and this world is really chaotic right now. And I, you know, as we did this, one of these first shows in the new year, I wanted to have a friend on uh, who's been in the forefront of peacemaking uh, for a long time. And I have the privilege of working with every week uh, at Red Letter Christians. And um, so my guest today, hi, Diana. Diana Oostrike. And doing all kinds of stuff with us at Red Letter Christians and also in our own life doing all kinds of peacemaking work. Um, If you haven't checked out her book, Waging Peace, um, Wage Peace, it is awesome. And it's a little bit more of her story. Um, But we've been doing a lot of stuff and we're going to talk about that today. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. That's what we're after, not war making, but peacemaking. And Diana actually has a really incredible story story that we won't get all into today, but I think, Diana, it's helpful for people to know just a little bit of your backdrop from going really in the front lines of combat and war to thinking about Jesus and the gospel, and because I think it also gives a lot of context and maybe even an invitation to show moral courage, uh, moral courage right now for folks that might find themselves in the military or trying to navigate uh, what could be um, an even deeper escalating war in the world. So thanks for joining me. First of all, good to see your face. Man, uh, thank you. And thank you for showing us baby Eli. I feel like it's the best thing on the internet right now, everybody. So check (laughs) out that little man with the big snore. Um, But I am super honored to be here, Shane. And my story, I think, is probably like many people's story. A lot of folks um, all grew up in a little, little rural town somewhere with about two stop signs. Great people who loved you. And so I grew up in a little Baptist church, 50 people probably, and grew up loving, uh, it was kind of the God, guns, and country situation. Um, So my family are veterans. So I signed up to be in the army when I was 17, mostly because I wanted to go to college. And most people in my family enlisted um, more than went to college. So that was um, my my worldview, my workaround. So I was almost done with my six years um, in the Army National Guard when Iraq happened. And mm. so I had gotten deployed and it was the first week I was there and we were convoying into enemy territory the next day and we were told 
that it was an enemy tactic to push little Iraqi kids in front of American trucks in order to stop the convoy, and then they would ambush at the rear. Mm. And the sergeant said, I hope you understand your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. And if you aren't able to do your duty, stand up now and identify yourself. And before Mm. I could figure out like how to be a coward or not, (laughs) uh, the sergeant yelled, dismissed, and then everybody went back to their tents. But we were leaving at 4 a.m. the next day, and I had eight hours to kind of wrestle through this. So um, everything that I'd been told, my faith told me it was okay to take a life to save a life. Um, I was also told that if I was serving my country, it was ultimately really serving God as an American. And so everything I believed was true, but somehow something was pushing back. And so in the middle of the night, um, I don't know how it works for you, but I was Mm. having this uh, crisis because I didn't, I couldn't do what I was supposed to do. Um, And at the worst of it, I prayed the little prayer, oh God, oh God, help. And then I just felt this like voice just come at me from the darkness of this tent. And it just like loud and clear said like, I love them, Diana. I love Mm. them too. Mm. I just knew like the dam broke. Everything made sense. I could breathe again. Um, And whether that's like the Holy Spirit or the hint of heaven, but like I knew that God was love Mm. and I knew that God loved my enemies as much as he loved me. And I knew that I was going to be a citizen of the kingdom of life first and my country second. Mm. So, um, so I took the bullets out of my gun. and decided I would never kill anybody. I would give my life for anybody. I would step in front of it for anybody. Um, but never would I be on the side of death. I was made for life. And mm. so I still had to be in war for a whole nother 397 days. And there's many, many um, different stories about that. But the thread is that as I've talked to other veterans and also people overseas, many people have had these experiences where they connect with this um, with this truth of like love love and that God made us and loves us. And so no, they refuse to be enemies. So I know there are um, Christians who oftentimes have this experience when you actually get put into where your your beliefs have somebody at the other end of the gun. All of a sudden, things get real loud and clear. Uh, Vincent Harding from the civil rights movement had the same experience. So the more I, when I go and talk, there's always people come up to me afterward in churches who are like, hey, me too. But you know, I can't tell anybody because I know it won't be okay in my church or in my family or in my country to say that you'll never use violence to get what you want. And I know that there's people in other conflicts, South Africa and Israel and Palestine, and they've all had the same experience. So being a a soldier and a combat veteran who has seen violence and been a survivor Mm. of war, who's choosing that this is not the way, I think creates a lot of tension, but also a lot of hope. Yeah, Um, yeah. We can be be people of conscience and courage, um, and we're never going to lose if we choose to love first. Come on. If you're just tuning in, y'all, that voice you're hearing <laughs> is Diana Ostrike. Um, make sure you keep listening to her story. Um, we, we, you know, we've done a bunch of shows like this and I've heard you tell um, that story a few, you know, a few times, but every time it rips my heart out that you've got to be prepared just to, you know, run over children, um, human beings made in the image of God. And and I also think your reminder that um, there are conscientious objectors everywhere throughout history. I mean, we've got great saints. Um, I mean, like Francis of Assisi, who we often known, you know, um, whereas Lord, make me an instrument of your peace prayer and, you know, other things like, but he was in the crusade. 
crusades. And and the more I read about that, Diana, I mean, these were crusades where literally they were Christians or, or people pretending to be Christians were cutting off the heads of Muslims and firing them out of cannons. And these were like the what we call the holy wars or the crusades. And Francis felt himself in a collision to those. And so did Martin of Tours, who ripped his, uh, you know, ar- his body armor in half and uh, wrapped it around a beggar on the streets. I mean, there's all these stories of conscientious objectors. And even right now, you know, I, I was telling you before we started recording that when I went to Israel and Palestine, uh, we traveled and met with all kinds of folks. And we tried to hear very deliberately, like different perspectives. You know, uh, we went to uh, a Jewish settlement and an Israeli settlement and to talk with folks there about how they felt um, entitled to bulldoze Palestinian homes and take land that uh, generations and generations had, had been passed down to Palestinian families. Um, but we also met with this one group I'll never forget. They were called Refuseniks. And these were Israeli defense soldiers, IDF soldiers, who um, refused to comply with their military order. Um, they um, felt this collision in their conscience and, and this conviction that they couldn't do some of the things that they were being asked to do by the Israeli uh, state the state of Israel. And um, and some of them face criminal charges. I mean, but we're sitting down with these folks and I'm thinking, my gosh, I mean, this is, this is yeah. like courage lo- looks different in different contexts, but they also have mandatory service, I believe yeah. in Israel, right? Where you guys serve like two years in the military. So some of these folks were just doing what they saw as their civic duty, but then they, they were um, being tasked with things that were an absolute violation of their own conscience. And then when I was in Iraq, when we went with the peace team to Iraq, we were with soldiers. One of them was Charlie Litke, who became one of the most decorated veterans in the country. In fact, when you watch the movie Forrest Gump, they dub over Charlie to put Tom Hanks in as he gets the kind of purple heart or whatever. (laughs) But when we were in Iraq, Charlie held a sign that said, I'm against this war as only a veteran can be. Because he had seen all of that, you know, the the horror of war and the dead end of it, right? That violence only spirals into more violence. And so it's so encouraging to hear your story story, but also as an invitation, right, to folks who might be in the Israeli Defense Force right now, who might be in uh, in the U.S. military, who might be making the bombs in, in Scranton right now that are being sent over to Gaza to say, no, my faith and my conscience will not let me participate in this violence. And I think it's so important to know that there is a community of conscience. And whether or not your faith has actually invited you to that, or they have told you not to, um, there actually is this community of conscience that you'll see across. I like that community of conscience. Yeah. Um, and and thing is, it's a small voice, but it it has always been more powerful than the voice that wounds, because violence will always take from us. And yeah. if you look at people who have, if you look at U.S. veterans, by and large, um, not doing well. There's a lot of spiritual, physical, and psychological harm that you never get back. And so I I see these communities of conscience as people who are fighting for the humanity and the livelihood of all of us. Because yeah. we know that once we do violence, whether we are making the bombs, whether we are voting for it, whether it's our tax, tax dollars, um, we are forever part 
of that harm. And mm. even 20 years after being in Iraq and waging that war, things are harmed and people do not forget. And I think right. that's it's easy for Americans to forget um, when we're not on the receiving end of the bombs. Yeah. Um, so I think that is so important to keep telling people that we have a choice and that we can imagine a future where we aren't killing anybody to get what we want. And the plus yeah. side of that is... Uh, we save our souls because I truly think that wherever we are part of dealing out death, um, we will never be the same. Mm, mm. Um, and yeah, one of the one of the other veteran voices that I heard, came across is a guy named George Mitso, and I, I have a poem by him that um, I think we put it in Jesus for President or, or one of the books that we wrote. But it, it basically says, uh, "My parents told me that it's wrong to kill except in war. My friends told me it's wrong to kill except in war. My church told me." It's wrong to kill except in war. My, you know, it goes on and on. My government told me it's wrong to kill except in war. And he said, but now I tell you, my parents, my friends, my church, my government, it's not wrong to kill except in war. It's wrong to kill. And somehow we like create this license for state to do what we would never uh, allow an individual to do. And this is interesting in Israel and Palestine, right? Is that like no one that I know anyway is trying to defend what Hamas did on yeah. October 7th. It was absolutely horrific. Um, Killing, terrorizing people indiscriminately, um, uh, and 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 yeah, like that's what we've seen every day since October seventh in the state of Israel. And there's this sort of like aura of exceptionalism or um, moral um, uh, agnosticism, right? That they, you know, well they can't do wrong. And some of that's because of the suffering that they have experienced throughout history as Jewish people, or even on October seventh. But that shouldn't be a moral license, right? No, no. matter how bad an act. Of terror is it doesn't give you the right to do incredible yeah. acts of terror and that's exactly what yeah. we're seeing right now and one of the people who um i who i quote is victor frankel and mm. we know him because he is a jewish man who survived four different concentration camps mm. and what he says is no one has the right to do wrong even when a wrong is done against them mm. and i think if somebody can come out of four concentration camps. Everyone he ever knew and loved, his parents and then his wife, um, were murdered. If he can walk through that and his moral conscience, his moral authority says a wrong is a wrong is a wrong, then mm. I feel like that is a light for us. That is a spiritual light. That is a moral light for us um, that we can say whenever there is violence, it is, there is no, there is no justice in violence. And I've stood in places of genocide before. So I have stood um, in Rwanda six years after that genocide. And I have visited in Jerusalem, there's Vad Yashem, the symbolic um, mass grave for the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. And also in Iraq, where you end up tripping over a skull in the desert where you know there has been killing. And I think mm. the, the thing that has always struck me, one, you know, just that human beings will kill each other. But the thing that is always left me like eerie, like unsettled, like I just like scares me is that there were people who thought this was okay. Yeah. Like that is the biggest, that is the scariest thing to me. And so yeah. I think coming out of being part of violence myself and being witness to it is this like complete, like you have to, if you can't accept that violence is wrong, then I could be one of those people who gets mm -hmm. convinced that this is okay. And yeah. that's scarier than anything. So I feel like if we if we can watch kids being
being killed. And if you can't say no to that, then that says so much more of us. Than, and, and my war was a revenge and a response to a terrorist attack. It was the Iraq war was because of the 9-11 terrorist attack. And that did not bring anybody back. It, I don't think it brought healing. I think it created harm for soldiers who were sent, for Iraqis who were there. There was torture. There was killing. Like It brought out the worst in us. Yeah, and so yeah. violence, as a way to respond to violence, I'm like, if we can't say no to it, then I feel like we are um, we're collaborating with it. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in many different ways, we've kind of w- dissected this um, idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You you know, and you've you've talked about this, and I've written on this too. And it, it was this framework that you could do um, reciprocal harm, right? That you could harm someone back in the same way that they harm you. But we've used it kind of as a license for revenge. And and yet, even if you went by that ancient law of a, of lex talionis, as it was known, where we get the idea of retaliation, it only allowed for you to harm someone back. It put a limit on it, right? Mm-hmm. That you couldn't harm them more than they had harmed you. In fact, it was to be actually the exact same way. So if they broke your left arm, you could break their arm, but it had to be their left arm. It had to be the exact same spot, <laughs> right? And so, but then you think like, well, this is interesting because if you think of 9-11, right? And the 3,000 lives that were lost, um, and then we killed hundreds of thousands of people and spiraled and mirrored the evil of the terrorism, right? We became the terrorists. Um, and, and now you look at what's happening in Israel and the, you know, all of us grieve those 1,200 lives lives lost on October 7th, but we also grieve with equal passion and outrage the 10,000, over 10,000 children that have been slaughtered in Gaza. And now we don't even know the numbers. 8,000 are missing, but at least 25,000 folks that have been killed in Gaza. So even that law doesn't allow for, (laughs) this is like what's encouraging is like some of my Jewish rabbi friends are like, there's nothing in this that you can reason with. Like you cannot rationalize this violence, even as a Jewish person. Uh, but especially as a Christian, when you have right. Jesus saying, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this, don't even harm them back. Just because you might have the legal right doesn't mean it's morally right. And so this is where Jesus even transcends that eye for an eye and shows us not to mirror the harm. And I think of like the ways that war has evolved, like even just war theory doesn't hold up. Augustine would be outraged if he saw what we're trying to use his just war theory to justify. I'm not a just war theory, you know, but anyway, you know, but I was meeting with this guy that was a drone operator, Diana, and he was talking about how it desensitizes you. In fact, he was talking about the screens that they look at. And he he said, we call it a splat when someone is killed. And he said, like, you're swatting a fly. He said, he's like, that's almost what it looks like. And he's like, all of it is designed exactly like your story, right? To, to desensitize you to the human life. And now as a drone operator, he became a conscientious objector and said, I will not participate in remote controlled war because it does something unique to us. The moral injury that when you kill someone on a screen and then, and then go, you know, drink Starbucks and come back an hour later, like that does, it's a unique kind of like soul killing thing, right? And I think there's so much to be said for, there's people who do not have to have a spiritual conversion or connection to just be able to see this is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, man, there's a universal truth that if we don't put other loyalties first or put ourselves 
Oh, um, then we people can see this. They don't need to have a spiritual conversion to Jesus Christ to figure out that, oh, yeah, bombing people and killing kids is wrong. What is scary is that when people defend something that everybody across the world can see, this is harm. This is horror. This is beneath us. This requires us to speak up because um, this is our legacy and we get to be for life instead of death. And we have been speaking up. When you have Diana Ostrike on here, the time flies, (laughs) y'all. But we're gonna we're gonna go over a little bit for folks listening to the podcast, but folks listening on the radio show, we've got just a few minutes, and I want to tell you just a few things that we've been doing at Red Letter Christians that Diana's been helping lead, um, so that you can step up and take action. Um, a couple of things we did at the end of the year that are still carrying over are we had this whole powerful uh, campaign, uh, Christ in the Rubble, which was around the Christmas season. But if you listen, y'all, to Munther Isaac's sermon, it's not just a Christmas sermon. It's a gospel sermon every day. Uh, some 10 million people have now listened to that. And if you haven't seen it, we've got the transcript and the link on the Red Letter Christian site. But then we raised a bunch of money with an icon made by Kelly Lattimore, icons of Christ and the nativity underneath the rubble. And we're, we're sending over $150,000 uh, to help relieve the pain, to heal some of the harm. It's just one concrete way that we're trying to step up. But Diana, just t- tell people a few other things. We've had an emergency summit. We're helping to organize um, actions in the street and vigils. So um, you, you've been a part of all this. Uh, t- tell us yeah. a few things. Yeah. Well, I think the most beautiful thing is that Red Letter Christians, we are giving people actions and a way to put Jesus's words into the streets. And I think that is how we heal what's broken. And so one of the ways we were doing that is we were part of this emergency summit in Chicago. But the most beautiful thing is Reverend Jesse Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, God bless him. Uh, yes. He, he hosted and then um, another, I mean, there were 13 groups, but I think the most powerful thing is that we were gathering people who were saying that out of my faith, out of my conscience, out of my community, we are going to say ceasefire. And mm. the amount of diverse people standing on stages together that were blessing each other, we had Jewish folks um, blessing this and we were having Palestinian folks and Arab folks and Christian folks and activists and moms. And I feel like mm. this is what we were. We were being the family that can uh, love our own religions, love our own cultures, but love each other more than that. Mm, And I think there was just this power in seeing that in a time of divisiveness and chaos, um, seeing people choose to work together for a ceasefire. I think everybody walked away from that feeling um, heard and connected. And like faith doesn't have to be a divisive thing. This is actually going to be the thing that moves us towards each other. Hallelujah. Um, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we're going to have a whole bunch of other stuff on our website, y'all, that you can follow and track. Um, And we're honored to stand alongside uh, so many other organizations um, as we call for a ceasefire, for an end to the violence, for a release of the hostages and saying, let Gaza live. And um, on one of our retreat, the Red Letter Christians retreat, we had the opportunity to collaboratively write songs, didn't we, Diana? Yes, Um, we did. And us non-musicians got to write. We got so to it do was it. really fun. 
<laughs> so we're going to send you out with one of the songs that was written on the Red Letter Christians Retreat, uh, spearheaded by our friend Mark Thompson. Reverend Mark has made a powerful video and website. You can just go to Cease Fire Song. It's available everywhere and on our site, but we'll send you out with Cease Fire, the song. Here you go, y'all. Okay, we did it. We had 30 seconds of the song there. So now what we can do, Diana, is we can keep talking for the folks listening to the podcast. So because I feel like we were a little, we were a little crunched. So we won't go too long. But um, so folks listen to the podcast, you get this little bonus thing. Because if you don't know, the recorded show also airs in the UK on Premier Radio. We're grateful for that. But then we don't always like being confined to 25 minutes. So we can just talk a little bit more. Uh, and we're grateful for everybody tuning into the Red Letter Christians podcast. So um, we did that. We did the Christ and Rebel thing, right? We also did Book Club with Mitri Rahab, which is yeah. he's one of the he's the most prolific and published Palestinian theologian. And I think one of the things that's amazing is seeing how deep the roots of Christianity are in this region. Um, in Israel, of course, te- like, uh, you know, um, but also in the West Bank, in Gaza. I mean, some of the oldest yeah. Christian sites and Christian roots are in this contested land, uh, this occupied territory. So Mitri and Munther and Shireen and Yo- uh, we did a powerful uh, prayer call with Yusef, uh, who has lost so many of his loved ones in Gaza. So we've got to keep centering those voices yeah. of, um, of really everyone whose lives at stake. But particularly, I think it's powerful for Christians to see Christian theologians that are Palestinian that see empire and occupation differently because of their faith. And these are the roots and the elders of Christianity. I feel like Western Christianity is kind of like this, well, you know, it just happened here for me. And so we kind of get this really small view, but really Palestinian Christians have been um, the elders of our faith and where it started and living it out under violence and occupation um, for so long. And so I think being able to put those voices there is the is that thing that gives us courage to one, find out what we don't know. <laughs> you know, like Christianity didn't didn't like, you know, come to happen in Alabama or wherever we think it did in the U.S. Yeah. But there are these historical roots, and I think it can tell us how to mend divides as peacemakers in our own communities, um, where you learn the stories you don't know, and you start to move towards folks. Heck yeah, I was thinking of that Texas governor who will remain unnamed, but <gasps> said, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> oh, I wish I was joking about that. I have, that really I, have, <laughs> I have the governor from Alabama on my speed dial for every single execution and mm. like I'm like I shouldn't have you on speed dial but guess what <laughs> until yeah. the day you start to like value lives you will be hearing from yes. Minnesota every single that's time so good. that's so good okay so I want to talk about one other thing before we go well well first of all if you if, if those of you that are listening if you haven't seen the open letter the the um call for repentance yeah. that was written and drafted by um Palestinian Christian leaders uh, and it's an open letter to kind of the Western church. Uh, it's really powerful. And it's on our website. Vanessa will probably put it in the show notes here and whatnot. But, um, um, you know, I had this idea, Diana, that we could we could actually offer a little like seminary course in Palestinian Ooh. liberation theology with some of these folks. So we might um, see what we can do That'd with awesome. Bethlehem Bible College and um, Sabil and all of our friends over there, see if we could do a little like Wednesday night to study through 2024. So in our free time, we might organize that. that that's a great idea. Oh, and 
another thing I was going to tell people is we are, we've done stuff with the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And I think yeah. for people who don't know that that is the oldest American peace and justice um, organization, one of only two that Martin Luther King joined and put his name on. And it started as um, conscientious objectors mm. around World War One, maybe World War II. Um, so just keep, can, there's all of these different groups that I think if you can find your way and use them as a resource, and we'll try to keep putting them together around um, red letter Christians, but there is yeah. action. There are petitions. Um, listen to our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters, and we just got to keep getting loud. Yeah, and and the the other you mentioned, Dr. King. Um, you know, I think Dr. King's his his um, passion for nonviolence is really interesting. If you if you really track his life, because at one point he was a gun owner um, that felt really deeply convicted that we're not going to build a better world of peace using the weapons of violence and he surrendered his weapons and I mean it was at, at a really this kind of deep you know holy ghost moment really it seemed like after someone had tried to bomb his house that he came to that conviction and um, and then also began to connect the the violence of Vietnam and just the violence of militarism and, and war in general and he said you know I've told um, you know disenchanted youth that violence won't solve their problems but then they asked me why does our government use massive doses of violence to try to solve its problems and dr king said you know every time we defend war we're teaching our kids that violence can solve their problems and he also called america the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today and said i have to speak out against the violence of my government so you know you've been you and i have both been really inspired by dr king we've worked with uh you know his daughter uh, dr bernice king at the king center you just did this event and i think it's helpful for people to see that Dr. King was learning too. He was learning from Jesus. He was yes. learning from Gandhi. And he came up with these principles of King, you know, now we call them principles of Kingian nonviolence, but Dr. King's yeah. kind of um, core principles of nonviolence. So how'd that event go with the King Center? And, Man. and you know, you want to say more about that? Yeah. I mean, it was honor of a lifetime because he's my peacemaking hero. And he said that his, um, his inspiration for peace was Jesus Christ and his strategist was Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, mm -hmm. I think my inspiration for peace is Jesus, but my like role model and strategist was MLK, you know? So getting yeah. to be there and celebrate and um, teach people peace was bucket list for me. But uh, every year they have a global summit around Martin Luther King Day. And I, it's always Zoom. So and just jump on there. But I watched it first with my kids and it was so powerful mm -hmm. years ago. But getting to be there with them, um, I feel like the spirit and the baton was being passed mm -hmm. that nonviolence is still the most powerful powerful weapon on the planet today. And our humanity is warring, angry. We are making each other sick. We are making each other tired. Um, and nonviolence is still the light that's going to lead us over there. So I get to be on a panel with some pretty amazing folks. Um, and they were super, super smart, Shane. But to add the counterpoint, because they were like, you know, they're all reverend doctors, PhDs, amazing. But I was like, you know what? You can just be an ordinary person who doesn't have time to take the class, right? now. But what you can do is show up in your community for somebody who's experiencing 
seen violence. And that proximity and that commitment is going to plant peace in your community. So you don't have to wait. You don't have to be better, different. You don't have to change your beliefs, but you do need to show up for folks. And that's Gaza. And that's um, show up at your schools, show up in your community centers. So I was kind of the everyday thing (laughs) on the panel. Yeah, and you're you're, you're cutting yourself a little short, I think. But yeah, no, you're you're brilliant. And you were right in the, the perfect place with the harmony and the cloud of witnesses there. And a lot of them were a part of RLC too. Uh, Dr. Vonetta West, who um, uh, helped coordinate and run the Nonviolence 365 program. So we did a faith forum with her. You can see more of uh, her and how to connect up with the King Center. But we're all singing the same song, y'all, the song of Jesus, the song of peacemaking. And we need everybody um, to join that movement of peace. It's helpful to know that like um, that it is countercultural and that Dr. King was very, very unpopular. In he, fact, every member of his everybody. board, except for, I think it was Otis Moss Sr., that every other member of his board of directors uh, voted against him speaking out against the Vietnam War and whatnot. His popularity tanked when he began to do that, but he did it not because it was popular, but because it was right, okay. because it was very unpopular. And of course, we know what happened to Jesus. We know what happened to Gandhi. He was killed. And yet that is what we believe, is that love is the only way forward. Um, and, and no matter what they do to us, we will rise again. So thank Amen. you for the conversation today. Amen. Anything else people should know about? See, Man, I... Talking all day, yeah, we can do what we want. I hear a crying baby in the back. I got to go <laughs> uh, do, do something other than uh, podcast right now. <laughs> no, just uh, follow along. Keep showing up. Connect with uh, connect with us because you're going to find a community of folks who are going to let you know that you are the right person, exactly who you are. Um, you're the right person to join the Call to Witnesses. And we need you. And there's nothing but hope. Every time I connect with somebody, and I was in Akron, Ohio, with our friend Bryson, who's doing amazing work. Yep. And I did, and I get a little uh, waging peace workshop slash MLK day. Oh. And and I remember starting with the day Martin Luther King became the most dangerous man in America mm. was when he came out against war because it is so disruptive and it and it is so dangerous to a government to have their people refuse to show up for their wars. And so I think that uh, we just keep going on. We keep doing where Jesus told us mm. to show up. And you know, there's a bumper sticker I used to laugh at when I was uh, more in my military mindset, who would Jesus bomb? But mm-hmm. it is so true. Yep. <laughs> it's so true. Like it, right. it's just, it's just true. Like love is more powerful, and we can always show up, um, show up the way Jesus and justice would. And we're gonna That's have it. joy if we do it. Hallelujah! And to send you out with a Dr. King quote, y'all: "Those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war." Hallelujah! Because we haven't always been organized, but we have got to raise our voice, leverage our finances, uh, do everything that we can right now to stop the S escalation of violence. We've got to do good theology to combat the bad theology that is trying to justify injust- unjustifiable and unchristlike violence right now. So stand with us at Red Letter Christians and continue to follow Diana on everything. Diana Ostrike, my friend, my <laughs> colleague, my sister. Uh, thanks for the conversation today. Man, love you, Shane. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. 
You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.